All right, sorry, Phil. What were you saying about what you explained to me? What a NPC and whoever Pinky Doll is. Oh yes, yes, yes. So NPCs are essentially like people who do like a specific set of phrases um, for tips. And I think Pinky Doll is like the most popular one, or at least the most well-known one, who would like pop popcorn with a flat iron, and then she would be like, "Oh, ice cream's so good," and like start to look at the camera and said some other nonsense. And then there's like another one who is uh, Miles Morales. But every so often he would break character because like someone would be like, yo, stop doing that, bro. They're like, yo, you want, you'd be like, yo, I'll beat your ass. Like, come over here, I'll beat your ass. And he goes, hey, I'm Miles Morales. And we'll like do hand gestures. It's like, and it's, it's, it's weird. I don't understand. All right. It, well, I'm, I'm, I, I Wikipedia this person. Okay. Uh, Fenda Sinan, better known online as Pinky Doll, Canadian social media personality online streamer. Mm-hmm. She reacts to gifts sent to her with repetitive phrases and motions went viral in 2023. Uh, worked as a, previously worked as a stripper, webcam model, ran a cleaning company, lost the company after traveling to the state house for her father's funeral, looking for a new way to make money live streaming on the name Pinky Doll TikTok. NPC streaming. I'm gonna look into this now. Whatever this is. All right. So this is. Uh, this is. This is. You know, I watch a lot. Of, I, I watch a lot of Twitch streams, and uh-huh. I I I don't use TikTok. I don't watch TikTok, so I need to know. Just some of the things I've seen, man. Yeah, I don't um, know if they would do like NPC stuff on Twitch, but yeah, on TikTok because I guess it's you know you can do it I don't. I, I guess I'm still not... Okay, she often streamed while popping popcorn using a yeah. hair straightener and partially based her persona on the NPC from Grand Theft Auto. I'm not... I'm not understanding this this concept. I just, I cannot understand what she's doing or why people were paying money. You know, I I, I have no answer for that. Is this, I don't is know this like, you know, living statues kind of? But Kind, kind of, yeah. It's like Digital living statues. That's that's the best way to put it. I don't want to watch a TikTok, so <laughs> I just, you know, Phil. I just and listeners, you know, I had a different intro plan, but that's Phil. And I was explaining this to me. I thought I'm gonna record this because this is more surreal than anything I wanted to talk about. <laughs> but just you know, Phil, I'm in a maybe a bit of a life crisis. I realize, you know, because I'm. I'm 35, and that's you know that's the last age where uh, corporations care, advertising cares about you, right? They care about you know 18 to 35, right? But then right. men 18 to 35, women 18 to 35, and then once you're past that, you're in a different category altogether. You're mm-hmm. old in their eyes. So yes. once I hit 36, they're not going to care about my view, my what I what I consume anymore. Okay. And I'm just realizing, you know, I used to be with it. <laughs> then they changed what it was. <laughs> now what's it? What I'm with is it, and what's it is weird and scary to me. <laughs> Which is like, yeah, NPC streaming. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, you know what? That that quote uh, like reverberates with me every so often because like it would be something new that I would see that like either my my nephews would watch. They're like eight and nine, and then seeing like random stuff like this on like Twitter and Instagram. And I, I sit there and think to myself, I'm like, wow, how did we become like this as a society? You know, I was like, yo, we, I was but, like, we but, used, but we used the, to carve naked people. But this is the thing. This is the thing is I'm sure our parents said the same thing about us when they were <laughs> our age and we were young. Right. And I'm sure their parents said the same thing when they were our age and they were, you know, so on and therefore. Yeah, I mean, I can see that too, but I feel like also at the same time, though, like back then, people knew shame. Like, there's no more shame anymore. Like, I think that's, that's like the biggest thing. There's like that's, everyone, that's everyone's just out there. Yeah, everyone's just out there showing their ass, and it's like, wow, like this is this is what you're doing now. It's like, yo, I make I make fifteen hundred a week. I'm like, yo, you make fifteen hundred a week, losing all sort of dignity, and it's like, is is it really worth it? Like, is dignity? Shame is that is that a thing anymore? I don't I don't know. This is a scary new world we live in. I feel like this is straight out of a Huxley uh, book. Well, on the one hand, you're right; it is scary. 
On the other hand, our generation, and especially Gen Z, and especially the generation after them, I actually do feel sorry for them. Like, they are more aware. Because if you follow, like, right, like, why is it Gen Z and younger? There's so many rates of depression and, and mental health. It's because it's easier now to be more aware of what how fucked up the world is right now, so, and how screwed we how screwed we are, how screwed they're going to be in the future, because they're the they're the generation that's going to live in the climate change apocalypse. Yeah. Our generation, I think most of us probably will die will will die before we really feel the brunt of it. <laughs> Luckily, <laughs> <laughs> but I I mean you know they're the ones, so it's. On the one hand, yeah, there's no shame and all that. But on the other hand, like, well, what's the point of living? I can understand that desire when, like, you know the world's... The people before you screw up the world, they're not doing anything to make it better. And they're not... And they're actually, you know, the boomers, some of the subjects, you know, right. see. And I talk about all the time my coworkers, like, why the government were just fucked because everyone's, like, 70 or 80 years old. Right. <laughs> I, on both sides. On both sides of the aisle. On both sides of the matter. aisle, yeah. It doesn't matter what party feel like. At that point, like, they just don't care about the young people. Right. Um, until every four years. Uh, that it's high, that then we're just going to be this year. But it's like, at that point, like, you know the world's going to be fucked and it's not going to get any better. And the people in charge are not going to make it better. Mm-hmm. Why not just straight out popcorn and do it for 1500 an hour. Why not do what I see on Twitch, like do the pseudo topless streams? Uh, oh, I, yeah. No. Make it clear. Make it clear. Make it clear. I know about them. I don't watch them. That's not <laughs> what I'm into. But just spending enough time on Twitch as I do watching cooler streams, I, uh-huh. I know about these things. Okay. As someone who never uses Twitch at all, I'm aware of them too. Like, um, What's the uh, IGN and uh, Dex Dextero? Yeah, it, it makes it makes perfect clickbait online. Yeah, so that's what they tend to use. I mean, again, they use the image. I'm not reading the article or anything, but that, that that's what they. Because <laughs> um, again, like you said, it's clickbait, so it's just like uh, understanding of like yes, uh, you know, the world is the world is essentially coming to an end as we know it. Um, all the old people who screwed us over are doing nothing in their power to try and, you know, help things better, make things better because they themselves screwed everyone else over because of their own, you know, greed. So I, for one, I'm, I'm saying this here because I don't normally talk politics as much. Uh, nobody over the age of, of 50 uh, should be in politics and we need more broke people in Congress and uh in this in the in this in Congress. So as like House of Representatives and Senators, we need more broke people. Right. So they understand what the struggle is and not, you know, come from like generations of like politicians like like those damn Kennedys. Yeah. I would say they're would you say they're wicked? Oh yes. Extremely wicked. You know, especially that, you know, RFK Jr. Would you say they're divine? Uh, far from it, because you know we're all just human. All right. Speaking of you know, who is wicked and divine, and also doesn't care about the world's ending, and only care about being cool. The British continuing. Sure, the British. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you ruined it. Totally ruined it. I'm sorry. Uh, we're continuing our talk on the wicked and the divine by Kieran Gill and Jamie McKelvey, Image Comic. We're doing issue book. It's, it's collected in the big omnibus as book two. I think yes. there's uh, uh, issue twelve through twenty-four. So I'll just summarize what happened in book one for our listeners. All right. So book one, we follow the fangirl uh, Laura Wilson uh, trying to, well, in the first part, trying to prove the innocence of uh, Lucifer. Um, going through a series of harrowing adventures that introduces her to a variety, uh, of a variety of the pan- uh, pantheon um, that we meet, only to see that Lucifer gets uh, killed by Anak, and then later on through that depression and trying to figure out, um, that still trying to prove that you know, excuse me, Lucifer was innocent. Uh, she and herself finds out that she is the thirteenth god uh persephone um only to get killed and snapped away immediately yeah immediately, like right away so like that was that was very disappointing 
and you find out who was the person behind it all was the old crow who you thought was the caretaker, Anaki. No, she's been the one behind this first F, framing of <laughs> Lucifer and now killing Persephone. Yes. So it's like a big curveball, a big twist. And in kind of, uh, this is very kind of typical mainstream comics fashion, but I think especially image is in order to give the artist a chance to catch up and get ahead. Mm-hmm. Especially artists like Jamie Kelly, who obviously their drawings style is going to take a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. It's it's something you see. I think people who don't read a ton of mainstream comics by monthlies like like you and me have mm-hmm. no they'll get thrown off in the, tra- the trades and be like, why is the art style changing? But it's it's a thing. It's a time thing. It's very common to like, you know, and like they'll get a, they'll get a bunch of their friends or artists they're really friendly with to like take over and do a guest show like a different type of story that mm. they're typically they're one-offs like the main like anything that's that's in the main plot they'll usually save it for the main artist uh, a different kind of experimental you know one shot they'll let the guest artists take over which is the case for the first uh issues 12 through 17. Mm-hmm. uh issue 12 and the, the whole that arc that arc is called commercial suicide which I think is the name of one or more of the trades. So issue of Kate Brown, issue 13, Tula Lote. Issue 14 is still Jay McKelvey. Right. Issue 14, their colorist, uh, Matthew Wilson, I think he gives it a shot. Oh, no, 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 sorry. No, 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 no sorry. He's doing the colors with Jay McKelvey in issue 14. Issue 15, Stephanie Hans. Mm. Issue 16, Layla DeLuca uh, with Matt Lopez as colorist. And okay. issue 17, Brandon, Brandon Graham, uh, Clayton Cow still lettering everything except issue 17 because Brandon Graham letters his own stuff. Yes, because that's the guy who did uh, Profit and Jake uh, City. Uh, yeah, and then some of these letters. artists, some of these artists I do know, like Leo DeLuca did Shudder. She, she did Shudder uh, and uh, Phonograph. And Afar. Yes. Well, she was the and writer. Stephanie yeah, yeah. Stephanie Hans, I have seen her art somewhere. I couldn't remember. <laughs> but I, I've seen her art on something. Okay. But um, it's actually, it kind of works for most of these. It works for all these issues because the plot has, like, takes, it's on pause, right? We're, we're not, like, for this first half, for this first arc, this first half of the collected book, if you get the omnibus. Mm. The plot is on hold, right? Like, we had the big bomb show. What the? Laura's dead. Uh, Anaki is a killer, and then we just kind of stop to just take a time to focus the spotlight on different members of the Pantheon. Uh, and I really liked it. It's, I think it's a good time to. I do like that it, it it takes a moment to just put the plot on hold to let you get to know these characters because the first arc, he's throwing you know a do- over a dozen different characters, Kieran Gillen, right. uh, and you get like good s- snippets from the brief time. You, you do get a sense of who they are, who they are, but like now you get to actually get to know them, like where they come from, why they are. That's a little more depth, which I enjoy. Mm-hmm. No, I I completely agree with that. Especially right, so the with... first one, and then it kind of in the second half of this book, it goes back to the main plot. And things get a, it gets kind of wacky from there. Um, so the first one, I would it's not really focus on the member of the pantheon. It's more like a, a crew, Cassandra's crew. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, uh, the people got fired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because Cassandra, as we were talking about last time, uh, ascended into uh, Udir. Yes, Udir. Yeah, Cassandra is a member of the Pathion. Um, God's do this. This, this is actually for me. I thought this was kind of the weakest issue. Wait, I don't know how you feel about it. I would I would agree. You know, I I definitely agree because essentially it's the uh, issue of <clears throat> like right after Baphomet had killed uh, Inanna 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 Inanna. I don't know. Don't ask me. The prince. The prince dude. The prince okay. Guy. Yes. The prince guy. Um. And so now we're seeing it from the perspective of like you know someone who's clearly uh like power hungry and. Within this world, right, you know, power comes from stardom, you know, being in front of the t- camera or being the one who controls the camera. Um, so Beth 
this is like her thing um and somehow was able to bring in these two other people whose name i don't think we ever learn at all because well, like, it's also the run. You, you could tell that she's clearly presented being under the shadow of cassandra and now she gets to be kind of front and center recording it's basically this very petty fight between ball and morgan yes uh so in terms of the story but like nothing really happens in the story there's nothing super new that's that's revealed about these characters have been in the back background for so long and i don't know it just i didn't really it didn't exactly make me want to care more about them yeah i mean because like it only moves it only moves the needle like incrementally because it's like you know baal captures the morgan and uh this also reveals like the importance of like Beth and her crew and how they're going to play a role later on in the in the story as well. But like that's about it. Everything else was just like, how dare you know Cassandra get to become a god and not me? And you know I should have that should have been me who becomes one of the who become one of the fate and blah sure. blah blah. Yeah. There's one thing I do like is the page design. Mm-hmm. And you can see kind of the the strengths of having different artists take over. You see different styles from what Jamie Kelby likes to do. Mm. So you, you can see you see this film. I sure yes. Yeah, I see. So this double page spread of Ball fighting Morgan, but there's a camera lens in the middle because in each, in, you see, and you see you see here in some of the panels, uh, Beth is filming this fight. And I thought this was just a really cool design. Oh yeah, no, I think it was very, very clever. Especially like if you look at the center of the uh, the the lens, right? You can see the uh, subway there as well. So it's just like really setting up like what it was once before. You know, all the uh, teenage superpower, teenage angst. You know, destroys the underground. Yeah, it's also it does a really good job catching the chaos and the energy of the fight in a way that's actually not chaotic mm-hmm. right it's actually a very structured panel design because it's like a six eight spoke star i guess the best way to call it whatever the shape is in the middle yeah it's the it's the symbol for captain marvel yeah that's that's, that's what that's what it's reminding <laughs> me of yeah but it, it's, and it's way jagged but it it's actually very structured but it, yeah you get the energy of the fight working really well mm-hmm. um similar thing with uh the next page, right? These diagonals with the lightning border, balls, electricity, sky god, right? Circular, circular panel, right? Um, I thought I thought that was uh, super cool. It was, like the story was a little kind of filler-ish. The stories that we see here between uh, uh, twelve and seventeen, this was the most filler of them all, right? And then the next one. Uh, issue 13, which is a focus on Tara, and we've mentioned her before, uh, but she's and we talked about her in the last episode in book one. But this is where the episode you actually learn about her because she right. just gets always passing reference to her in, in the first volume. But this is where it's like you the first and only time you get to know Tara, <laughs> that is true because everyone just you know refers like fucking Tara. Um, and then here in this issue, we find out that uh, she she's very extremely talented. She wants to do very beautiful, very talented, um, but feels like people look at her just superficially and wants to get by by her own merit, um, which I don't quite understand in terms of like her being super talented, but still wants to get by on her own merit. I guess it has to do with like her. Um, well, I think I think it's like she's kind of talented, but most people are not really recognizing that, or they think it's she's only. You don't recognize her talent. You think she's only successful because she's a hot woman. Oh, okay, so so that was the thing. So like every so often she would cover her face with the mask and break out the guitar, and then people would boo her and throw things. They're like, "Yo, stop it! Get out of here! Give us what we want!" Because these people are addicted to, I guess, God music. <laughs> Yeah, and the thing is, she hasn't she hasn't done anything wrong, <laughs> you know. <laughs> this is something I didn't bring this up last time, but I think it's kind of cool. So if you compare it to uh, Jamie, sorry, Kim Gunn's other book with Jamie McKelvey, uh, Phonogram, 
and it's about like people who use magic based off music, pop music. Mm-hmm. But the thesis of that of that series, it's about the fans' relationship to music, while not caring about the artists, right? Like the, <laughs> to them, the artist is irrelevant. It's just more about like I know this music. I'm super cool. This is my interpretation of what the music means. It's focused on like that part of fan culture, mm. right? It's like it's like the the like they're into the music, they understand it, they listen to it, they collect it. It's like a fashion. It's about the artist is irrelevant, right? It's just about their relationship. This was the reverse, Wicked Divine. It's about the art is irrelevant. It's about the relationship between the fan and the artist. That's mm. like the parasol the parasocial relationship. They're like famous, they're in love with them, they hate them, they're want to be them. But what the thing they actually create is irrelevant. Fascinating. I damn. I, I kind of like you explaining it that way. I kind of want to read phonogram now. Yeah, because you know there are definitely we live in that age now where like people are following artists, but more for like their personality, right? Right. Than, right. than they are like what they actually do, what they actually what make. And Tara, and Tara is like kind of the dark version of that. Is that people hate her not because of her their music or art or anything she's done wrong, just because of. Hmm whatever you know yeah yeah because i mean like it's it's always funny how we i mean how how do i phrase we've seen this a lot well at least i have seen this a lot in music because i know eric you're musically inclined um but for i would say the biggest example of this would be kanye west right very controversial figure but if you were to look at like his beginning works to like his transition now you would sit there and complain like, yo, we missed the old yay. Like, that's always been the big thing, right? College dropout, late registration, graduation was a phenomenal trilogy um, that <clears throat> not only had great production value with Soul Beats, but also just the artistry of rhyming um, and putting on other uh, art- artists as well. And uh, I still remember that day in uh, high school, sophomore year, uh, graduation, his third album was going to drop and it was up against 50 Cent's uh, Curtis. Was it Curtis? Yeah, it was Curtis. And it was supposed to be like, you know, the two biggest names in hip hop at the time. Who's going to who's going to take first place? And Kanye West beating 50 Cent showed a change in, you know, hip and it showed a change in hip hop music to begin with. And then from there. You know, right after his mother dies, he goes into 808 and Heartbreaks, which is a whole new sound that people are like, wait, why is this man singing on autotunes? We want we want the raps. Give us the bars. So I just I thought that was fascinating. I only thing I know about Kanye is I know the song Black Jesus because it's played all the time in movie trailers, especially (laughs) Atomic Blonde and the whole like Taylor Swift thing. Black Jesus. You, know. you mean you mean power? Is that? Oh, I thought that was. I thought Black Jesus was named the song. See, no, I, no, I, the song is called Power. Yeah, right. like because Power Ranger uses it too. Yes. No, his album cover. I think I think he had an album named Black Jesus. I know he was on cover of Time. He had the like. Oh yeah, that was the that was just the magazine. That was just the magazine, but he has no album called Black yeah. Jesus. Okay, so there's that, and I just know about a Taylor Swift, Beyonce thing. Oh yes. And then, and then you know, the last couple of years, going crazy MAGA, or maybe not MAGA, but he's pandering to MAGA people. Pa- pandering to MAGA, yeah. All right. Anyways, uh, this issue, Tara dies. It's your fate. But the thing is, not Anaki doesn't kill her. She commits suicide in, like, this kind of, uh, I don't want to say beautiful way, because I don't want to, like, glorify suicide. But it's, like... In artistic way, the way it's the way it's drawn, it's like she just takes her mask off and her like head turns into like a bunch of uh, colorful scribbles. No, that's that was that was Anaki killing her. Really, I thought she died herself. Yeah, no, like if you look behind, because like she's just before Anaki snaps. Yeah, do you see the page? She's look because she says because she writes a suicide. Yeah, there's a suicide note. I think not. Yeah. Or I think maybe I think it's implied that she was going to commit suicide and then Naki killed her before she was going to do it. That's exactly what it is. Okay. But anyways, the 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 exact plot details are not important, especially since I'm pretty sure it feels wrong, and I'm not going to admit I'm wrong. Uh, <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take I'll take my cues from Kanye here. Anyways, oh the next one, the next issue, fourteen. Jamie McKelvey is back. 
this is my personal favorite of these these like little spotlights the the re re remix because focus on Wudon, Woden. Um, and this is what's like it's the most the biggest revelation that mm. uh, Wodon is not the person you think he is. Uh, I mean, he's still a dick, but you understand, you know, uh, <laughs> what what the extent of it. So how would you just how would you sum up this this issue? Who he is more as a character. Uh, so Woden is a. I mean, the best way to describe it, he was essentially an axe whipping whipping boy. I think that's the the best way to describe it. Um, she yeah, so she. You, so you're learning. He's in cahoots with her. Exactly right. So, um, finding out he was scared when uh one of his former Valkyries, Brunhilde, pulls a gun on him. Uh, Minerva kills her. And he's going to enact and, you know, trying to get her to understand. But <clears throat> it's not really registering to her. Um, so, but nonetheless, they're still forcing him to, you know, prepare this. Do this. Do this. And uh, he also, I guess, shows a, a little interest in uh, Cassandra, you know? That's, that's also a thing, too. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> the, the, and, yeah, I know. There's like, uh, and it was kind of just a joke in book one. Right, you think he's got like an Asian fetish and tries recruits. That's the thing I really found was lovely. Like all the Valkyries, like it's an aesthetic. You would understand. Just they all have to be tall Asians, which is clearly just that's his that's his thing. That's his thing. But what I like in this issue is that you're viewing that he's not just a dick. He's actually very nihilistic. Yes. Like like and like really nihilistic. Like all these other pantheon who act that way because they just want to like. Oh, you know, we only live two years. We're gonna like flame out. He, this is a guy who's like deep seated. Like he's seen the worst of humanity. He thinks humanity is not capable of being better. Right? He gets this whole thing about like patriotic. Like and, and he understands more than he, more than people think. He thinks like, talking about <laughs> patriarchy, but it's like oh, it's not ruled by men. It's ruled by fathers, right? And most mm. men suffer because they will never be fathers. And we just mm. sacrifice. Uh, and so this is a guy who very much like reminds me of, uh, and this is probably because I've been watching a lot of the new season of True Detective, but he's like Matthew McConaughey's character of True Detective. Because most people think of nihilist, they just think of, oh, just someone who's just cynical or grumpy. And like, no, he, he's in like deep existential despair, that character, because of all the things he's seeing. And Walden is kind of the same thing. He's staring, he's staring into the abyss, right? He's yeah. Nietzsche, like he's staring into the abyss, and he sees no point. That's why he's going along and along. He's like, yeah, there's no point to any of this. There really isn't. <laughs> Which I... And he's still villainous, but now you understand, like, kind of the depths of his villainy. And I think it's because Sandra noted, like, you are actually, like, that shit. Right. <laughs> um, um, and, then, and then there's a funny page I really like. is they do a flashback to some of the scenes from... I'll share the screen again. There's some of the scenes from uh, book one. But... Oh. Yes. Woden is like the dialogue is from what his perception of these characters. <laughs> <laughs> Replacing the original dialogue, it was like Ball is he's pun he's fighting Lucifer, but Ball is like, Violence, I'm doing violence. I am very easily manipulated. <laughs> and this is what he thinks of Ball, right? There's Lucifer. I was too busy practicing my and on and on we and Melodrom to ever get a clue. But hey, I look really good. <laughs> and then second, second it, I also good. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed this because, like, yeah, he, Woden is a dick, but this was really funny. Uh, <laughs> but he's also more perceptive than people think he is, judging from just volume one. Mm. Which I I enjoyed. It's part of why it's my favorite uh, issue of this one. The next one, issue 16? Uh, this is, yes, this is 16. Oh, sorry, 15. Oh, okay. 15? No, this was 14. 14. Yeah, so 15 is about uh, Amaratsu. Amaterasu. Amaterasu. And it's like you're seeing kind of her background and what she's more like as a character. Because she's sort of treated as like a joke in book one. And that the whole like cultural appropriation, you know, she's a Japanese sun goddess, but she's a young Irish girl from Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> and you see her, there's a little more depth to her, is that she does actually has studied the like Shinto culture and see her she's doing the prayer at the shrine at the end. Mm -hmm. So even though like A, it's not her like 
not her fault. She's culturally fault for a Japanese god. She was chosen. She had no power over that. Right. But two, she's at least appreciative of, you know, the role that has taken on her. Not the least of which is that there's a big fight between her and Cassandra, <laughs> which I thought, which I thought was like really, really, really funny, because um, because she calls Cassandra out. It's like, do you even believe in Shinto? Do you? Do they even realize you're Japanese? Uh, <laughs> and it goes like privilege, and then she responds like privilege check. The idea that everyone can afford their country of ethnic origin. Oh, ethnic origin. Uh, it's highly problematic, rich girl. I personally enjoy that because I. I don't know about you, Phil, but I've gone a few times in my life. People ask, like, "What? You ever been to China? Or you never? You don't want to go to China?" It's like, "No, I don't. Not not what kind. Not afford it. I have no interest. If my family <laughs> isn't from China." <laughs> yeah. Uh no, it, that's never that's hasn't happened to me uh, so far. It's it's uh, usually the it's the complete opposite. People will be like, "Oh yeah, you know you're African American." I said, "Technically, I'm not. I'm first generation American. My parents are from the West Indies." Oh, your family's from Jamaica? I didn't say Jamaica. Like they're from, <laughs> they're from a different island, of a, a smaller island. It's called Saint Kitts. And like, huh? I never heard of that before. Where's that? And then I have to show them on my phone. Huh? Okay. And then they walk away by the time the conversation goes. So that's that's usually how it goes. Yeah, that was a. Uh, it's a little bit I like. It's a, the dialogue's really on the nose, especially with the Cassandra character because she is kind of the obnoxious woke woke character. But in this <laughs> in this thing, it's a little more funny. Um, also, I would say Phil, you never never been tested. What do you mean you never been tested? <laughs> you don't know your origins from of Africa. Oh <laughs> uh, like, yes, you know, I don't you want to go don't you, that. But don't you want to go back to Egypt, which is, you know, according to certain people, like Dr. Yakov is the origin of all all man. All man? Oh, yeah, gosh. Egypt, the original man, the Asiatic black man. Asi- Asiatic black man. Yeah, you're learning. You're learning. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, there's a big, there's a, they have a big fight. And you kind of tell all these artists, this is not a superhero comic, but they've all worked with superhero comics because the way they fight. And Jamie Kelly does say it in the main book, too. It's like, it's a very superhero style fight which i which is which i always thought was so funny that they have this they take that style the stylistic elements of that genre into which is not something that's really not a superhero comic and the people i know who read this are not really into superhero comics yes because i mean this this is this is not a superhero comic right this is angsty teenager godhood comic that yeah moonlighting yeah, Moonlighting has like music stuff. So issue sixteen, this is all around the Morgan, and you see kind of her origin story along with Bafflement. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they're uh, originally like kind of two goth lovers, <laughs> <laughs> and they just kind of, but they and they, and on, on the surface, right? They they have they seem like the stereotypical goth. They're only into the dark things that rebel against, you know, being white and suburban. But then. <laughs> And, and it's the case for most cops I've ever met. But then you realize, oh, they actually have been through them. But they have, they've been through stuff, right? Like, mm-hmm. they, they bond over, like, the shared tragedy, shared, like, lack of, uh, you know, family deaths, deaths in the family, you know, bafflement. Like, he's, that's actually why he is nihilistic, because the stuff they've been through. Um, they have some fight, because I got a little confused with this bafflement. Baphomet or whatever original name is Slap with someone. They have mm-hmm. a fight, she have a spat. Um, Marion, that was her name, runs into Anaki, Anaki and becomes the Morgan. Mm. Uh, I actually like I like this issue a lot because I was not really into these characters, but like it showed a layer of depth to them. So like, yeah, they're dicks, but you know why they're acting like dicks before they became gods. Right. So then you can see where the uh Essentially, their uh, heart strings lie. I guess that's the best way to describe it, especially with this issue of the the Morrigan and uh, Baphomet. Um, yeah, because a lot of the, like, some of this pantheon, you know, some of them, like, wounded is nihilistic, has ulterior motives. But a lot of these people are just very broken individuals who are then suddenly bestowed the power of God. Right. Though, I wonder, yeah. though, like, how broken is broken, though? Because I feel like, um, like, Baal... Right, he has a whole family. Um, what's his name? Uh, Enad, 
uh, Inanon, right, is another one who was able to, who's essentially just living life he wanted to live, um, despite being some sort of Southeast Asian, I believe. Um, well, funny you mentioned that on this next issue. Here's okay, issue 17 on segments story. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is probably the exception to like the broken individual. <laughs> oh yeah, no, this is yeah, this is the the poster child. Yeah, um, a segment is like kind of acts like a cat. And that's because segment really is acts like a cat. Mm. <laughs> uh, this is the Brandon Graham issue. Who I haven't read any of his stuff, but I know one of them, King City, has a lot of cats. So uh, I guess maybe uh, perfect for this. A segment is just like the the hedonist, the the hedonist of the group, and you can see how. Why she acts, but she also doesn't talk about her past life at all. And I don't, we don't really learn anything more about it in this issue. Uh, right, we wrong? get like, we only get like bits and pieces of it because mm-hmm. uh, it was like the understanding of like she was the uh, what is it called? Uh, she was, she was like the downtrodden kid essentially, right? She comes from a broken home, um, tried to, I think, when an act found her she was trying to run away um yeah as she was sitting at the bus stop with like a bottle of beer yeah but a she's like the broken kid who comes you come from a sad background but then uses that excuse to be like a shithead growing up yeah so she's that kind of character um so it's that it's not it's i would say you have empathy but i don't really i it's not i don't feel sympathetic for her like i do for Morgan and Baphomet and Amaterasu and Terra. Right, especially at the end of it where she ate her father. Yeah. <laughs> he was delicious. <laughs> it's a don't leave her alone, especially when she's sober. So, like... <laughs> but this is the thing I do like, is that because um, she's guarding, her role is to guard the Morgan in the cage. Uh, and it says, like, you know, you're not like she calls Oregon Caesar like you're not free, right? Uh, you're just like me. You're except I can see my bars. And second, it says, I like this is a very nice touch of character. I am free, free of all cares. <laughs> so she just doesn't care. She she, and the thing I like about this character compared to everyone else is that she's fine with who she is. Mm. Like I think everyone else is conflicted to various degrees about like their they their shit and they they don't they feel bad about being a shitty person, but. Uh, they they can't help it for where it's like she's like no that's fine I just you know I I sleep I sleep with people I kill people I eat people mm-hmm. um, I'm a shit person I accept it <laughs> <laughs> which oh. I, I I I enjoy this character and it makes that that characterization makes a little more sense with the the rest of the arc right because I mean she just comes off like simple like hey I like to eat I like to sleep I like to have sex and I like to you know, essentially fight. do whatever I want. Yeah, I like to fight. So, like, you know, yeah. who, who wants to smoke? Because I like, am the fire. Like how cat does. <laughs> yeah, like how an actual cat is. All right, so issue 18 and onward, now we're back to the plot. Yes, uh, and we get a surprise return of Persef- Persephone. Oh, why can't I say her name again? Persephone, right? She did yeah. not actually die. Yeah, she's whisked away to, like, Purgatory, I think, is what happens. Uh, yes, if, because uh, yes, what's it called? Um, as because what we saw before was Baphomet was about to kill Inanna in order to increase his uh age count, if you will, only to realize that he just couldn't go through with it, and um, they decided to like, hey, like you know, Enact told me this. They said, well, Enact told me the same thing, and like. Uh, Huh, these things aren't adding up with one another. Okay. This is good, because this is where and this is where my, my biggest criticism of this of this arc is that plot wise it starts getting confusing. Mm-hmm. Like the plot threads. I, I got a little lost trying to understand all the threads. Because at this point it's like it's a series of betrayals, right? Every, and, and people are starting to take sides and realizing, wait, people are lying to us and we're you know, oh but I'm gonna side with you, but I'm still gonna side with them. Mm-hmm. And that's where I got kind of confused. Well, you just told me I did not it like totally I went I glossed over. Uh okay. So okay, so like that whole like you know double take, double take, double take was like the part that had got you confused. 
Yeah, yeah. Because it's also like the way it's laid out is you present the scene mm-hmm. as what you think it is. Uh, Jamie Calvin, Karen Gallen. It's colored a different way, and then kind of it's kind of like the Nolan, like a Nolan type of thing. You go back to the scene where there's more context. Ah, uh, right? yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, yeah, but um, in any case, like, yeah, they they're now there's like lines being drawn on one side. You have and Anaki Woden, some of the Valkyries, um, second, I guess. And then mm-hmm. what's the other line when they realize when they realize Anaki is the one killing everyone? It's it's Laura. It's uh, it's Persephone, right? Sorry. Persephone. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is oh no, this is where uh, like I said, the big criticism for me is I got really lost, confused. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna throw my hands up. I'm just gonna, I don't care. I'm just gonna follow. <laughs> it's so much fun. And it is so much fun. They have so much fun drawing these big fights as as a big superhero fight. And you can tell mm-hmm. again, these are people who worked in this genre. Um, it's also personally, I just don't find this part as interesting because like, all right, now they're just fighting, and this isn't what I came to read. Looking at the mind part, I wasn't reading it for superpower fights. You know what? You're the exact opposite of me. Because, I mean, yes, I didn't come for superpower fights, but, like, if I'm going to get a superpower fight, I'm going to enjoy the hell out of it, to be completely honest. And I I definitely did, especially with the giant splash of the uh, giant robot woman fighting the the, the tentacles, uh, the tree yeah, tentacles. Yeah, they're, they're so funny. Yeah, there's some great cuts. There's some funny humor, which what keeps it fresh, but it's like... I don't know. That's just for me. I didn't feel like it needed the superhero. They didn't need this type of story. Didn't need the big godly super superpower fight. Uh, again, that's not why I'm reading Wicked and Divine for. I'm reading for like the the cross section of godhood and and celebrity culture and reading the clashes of these fucked up personalities. Well, don't you know, uh, like celebrities, they like once they get messed up, like they gotta break the hotel room. So this is them essentially breaking the hotel room. Alright, um, and yeah, they draw some battle lines. You know, there's Bald and Morgan's on one side, and I don't know. I've also, like I said, I was also hard to follow, but uh, <laughs> and then issue 20, it's also another, I don't know, it, look, it looks really pretty at this point. Issue, it, like, issue, is issue 20 the one where you learn about the Nurgle twist, Baphomet Nurgle? Uh yes, because that was when like we get like the backstory of Persephone, um, them saving her, and then uh, essentially Persephone and Nurgle, aka Baphomet, uh, sleep with each other. Mm-hmm. And you find out that Baphomet, he's not actually Baphomet. That's what he tells uh, the public. Mm-hmm. His actual god, and this is kind of it makes sense if you know your if you you know your your god mythology. Nergo, who is, I looked it up, Mesopotamian god of death out in the world, I think. Okay. And then, but Baphomet, Baphomet, it makes sense because, like, that's the thing that's, I, I think I brought it up last time, is that the thing that stands out is that he isn't a god like the other gods are, that there wasn't, like, a culture built around him. He was, like, sort of made up by Alistair Crowley. Right. That's like, but that's why they chose him, like, Kirigan chose him as a hit to anyone who's savvy. And I was like, yeah, because. That's a misle. He's a. Re- this is his actual god, Nergo. Um, okay, because yeah, I mean, I, 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 that still went over my head. I guess. Yeah, it's a deep cut. I have to look it up. But yeah, there's a big fight, the Valkyries and all that. Um, there's one thing I did like, and I did manage to catch up on it, is that uh, they do stop Anaki, like Laura. What was her plan? Did they ever quite explain what exactly her her plan was? Anaki, who Anaki's like, plan or or Persephone's plan? Oh no, Anaki's plan. So yes, maybe she just explained the plot. <laughs> at this point, like I said, this is this is where, like I said, this is my biggest criticism is that I I got quite confused at this point. Okay, so it it's a it's a red herring, right? Because like the idea of this was the I we thought that. Anaki was going to transfer her soul into uh, Minerva's body. That's what it seemed like because Anaki is dying. She needed a younger body in order to, you know, continue doing the work that she does Um, because it would make more sense than her just being an old woman for so long. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's that's what it um, seemed to be. Yeah, and then uh, so you say the red herring that is that was her plan, or that that's, that turns out not to be her plan. No, it turned out to not be her plan, which we later find out in the later issues. Sorry, say that again. Goddamn internet. I, oh, I said that's not her plan. We find out in the later issues, like in, I think, was it like the middle of book three? That's when we okay. find out what the actual, what her actual plan was. Yeah, yeah, which we'll get to that. that. But then they stop Anaki, and the moment I do like is that, like, like I think it's Ball convinces her not, convinces her not to kill her, right? Mm-hmm. And it is actually like a rare humanizing touch for Ball. It's like, you don't know what it's like to like, take a life. You know, you don't want to do that. Right. And it's like, it actually like moves Laura Persephone enough to not do it. Mm. And then, then there's a twist. It's like, wait, my sister, you know, she died. <laughs> she was sleeping in the fire that you lit on fire when you killed my parents, Sanaki. And Naki just like didn't even know about that. <laughs> just like, just right. like completely unaware that she'd actually kill her sister. So Laura does kill her for that. <laughs> she, and then she, now she basically takes over. Right. Cause mm. like, I think there's that nice page where she goes, uh, we do whatever the fuck we want or something like that. Yeah, whatever we want. Yeah. And this is, like, I like this because this was, this is the type of, like, resolution you thought this this is how the series is going to end. But I think, oh, shit, they put this at the halfway point of the series? Now yeah. it's going to be, like, a completely different type of story, which I like. Right, because like, I felt like the way book one ended, it ended on like a very high note of like, hey, this character we've been following for so long turns out to actually be a god, and then boom, she's dead. Coming into book two, no, she didn't actually die. She's coming for revenge now, and she's teaming up with the underworld uh, gods to take out this old lady who murdered her parents in front of her. Um, and not only murder her parents, but also murder one of the gods that she became really good friends with as well. Uh, so, like, it was like a twofer, if you will. And then, of course, being able to kill this old woman who was supposed to be, like, the, uh, the shepherd of the gods, if you will. Um, now we have come to anarchy. Like, you know, the British love anarchy, don't they? That's what that Cromwell fellow was all about, essentially. I, I don't think any of that was correct, but sure. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's like like a more conventional writer would have just that would have been the whole series, right? They just team up. I'm gonna go take down this god. It's like nope, that's just the midpoint of the series. Yeah. <laughs> now we're gonna go into like completely unexplored territory, which I thought was I did not see that coming. It's a good it's a good kind of twist. I I definitely agree. So I guess now we're going to be moving into book three, where it's a a brand new world, if you will. All right. All right. So before that. Um, Let's just kind of, I want to kind of wrap up our closing thoughts on book two. Of course. How'd you, how'd you feel compared to book one? What did you think it did well? Maybe where things fell short? Like I said, I felt, I felt it fell short in that it could be, I'm willing to admit, it could just be me that I got confused on the plot. So it could have just so many like twists and turns of like these betrayals and motivations. It was a little hard to follow. That makes sense. Uh, for me, I would say like the biggest. Uh, success was like just the overall like climax that was going on because we had the uh, short stories that were able to give us some more insight into each of the individual well not each individual but like specific individual gods um, of the story and then from there just like have the whole roller coaster ride from then on um I will say I do like book one more simply because it was more like murder mystery, like who done it and was like Lucifer really innocent until we found out who actually killed um, the judge and Lucifer. But I would say this this was this was pretty good as well. You know, this this was a nice uh, setup arc from that. Well, it's a good it's a good escalation. Right. And right. it's like kind of. You know, these arcs. So the first two arcs, right, they're called issues one through five of the Faust Act. Haha, uh-huh, I get it. Uh, the first <laughs> act of the introduction to this world, all these characters. The second, six through 11, is the arc is Pandemonium. Mm-hmm. We're, like, getting really into the depth of, like, the plot's kicking off. We're going to deal with murder mystery. These two arcs are commercial suicide, which is, like, really getting to know these characters more as we take a step back from the plot. And then mm-hmm. rising action, which I thought was a clever 
clever fourth wall winks to the nod. Some people might think it's not, but like this is like, yeah, we're gonna build up to like our our third act, our climax. Except mm-hmm. like, wait, this is what you thought was gonna be the finale? No, this is just the climax of like the beginning of the second act, essentially. Because mm-hmm. we got, you know, two more books. Imperial Phase Part One, Imperial Phase Part Two, Mother Invention, and then Okay, which is the final five issues. Right. So what I do like is that, and this is the thing where you can take a lesson from our rambling, uh, <laughs> is that you're telling because you don't really see a lot of this all now, in at least in mainstream comics like this. It's like you're telling this long series, right, forty plus, forty to sixty issues. But the arcs can are actually kind of they build on each other, but they're self-contained, which I really like. Yeah, yeah, no, I I definitely agree, and um, and like you like you said, right? That that is the big folly with superhero comics, because then, um, no matter where you are jumping on from, it still feels confusing, despite it being like yeah. brand new writer team, because it's a perpetual second act. Right, like poor Spider Man, he's he's never gonna catch a break. Unless it's unless it's Ultimate Spider Man by John Hickman. Oh, <laughs> uh, which I, I I should read. I mean, well, it's only one issue, so I'll, I'll wait till <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, so yeah, if you enjoy if you enjoy that, listeners, definitely stay us on when we tackle book three. Where and this is I hadn't read I haven't read this far in Wicked and Divine mm-hmm. yet. So this is gonna be new territory for me. So oh. I'm curious. I'm curious to see where it goes. All right, cool. Because uh, I do. Because I do. As I from what little I do know, things really start shaking out the second half. Like a lot of things you thought you know get turned upside down. Mm. On that note, I'm Eric Wong. And I'm Phil Fleming, and uh, we are gargoyles. <laughs> oh wait, which gargoyle are we? Oh, Bronx, just because the Bronx. No, I am not Bronx, because Bronx is a dog, and that's racist.